from UNH Cooperative Extension. This is Overinformed on IPM. job here in Extension is very different than any other job I've had. I've always been Extension adjacent. I've always researched some aspect of insect biology with application in mind, but primarily my job has been as a researcher. Actually, before I came to my job here at New Hampshire, I'd spent nearly two years as part of a national team of researchers working to understand the biology and to find ways to manage spotted wing drosophila. I touched on this in a previous episode about monitoring SWD and blueberry maggot with Lily Calderwood, who's the wild blueberry specialist in Maine, but we're going to return to this topic several times this year. Despite having dedicated several years of my life to studying SWD, I have never really had time to focus on giving recommendations on what I would do if I was managing a crop. So I kind of looked at last summer as my freshman year or my freshman season. I got a little money from the state IPM program. Thank you to the Department of Agriculture, Markets and Food in order to buy some trapping supplies. And I got to hire some help to drive around and sample blueberry crops for SWD. I really wanted to know what was better from a logistical point of view, um, using a homemade trap or a commercial trap, how to, how to use this information. I actually took some time to catch up with Abby, who was the student who helped me, to compare notes on what we learned last summer. So the homemade ones are a little more messy because just there was more steps involved, but obviously it doesn't take that long to do it yourself, but I think I like the commercial ones better because yeah. it was just easier. <laughs> Although they didn't, they smelled really bad, so. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like they both smelled equally bad. Yeah, well, just they were different smells, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel like the homemade ones collect a lot more things. Now, just like spotted wing drosophila or SWD. It is an invasive pest of small fruit. It was first reported on the east coast of North America in 2011 and started causing serious crop losses. Uh, and ever since 2012, um, serious, like in, in the millions and, and bajillions of dollars. This fly is closely related to the regular old fruit flies that come into your kitchen with one big difference. Well, there are two big differences. The males have, have a black spot on the tips of their wings. But the most important difference is that females have a heavily sclerotized serried ovipositor. What does that mean, you ask? Basically, she's got saws on her lady parts. While her cousins rely on rotten, broken down fruit on which to lay their eggs, SWD, she can cut a little hole in the skin of a ripening fruit and lay her eggs underneath. This makes SWD an agricultural pest, while the other native species are generally just considered a nuisance. This pest is unlike most other insect pests for, for lots of reasons. Not only is this invasive species unchecked by natural enemies uh, population-wise, SWD is, is particularly fecund, just like other drosophilids. They reproduce really, really quickly. With optimal temperatures, a generation can go from egg to egg-laying adult in 10 days. 
overlapping generations continue to pop out more and more offspring to result in an explosion of population by the time you get to the fall. Sometimes one trap can catch thousands of these flies in one day. So fall-bearing raspberry, for example, is particularly hard hit. Another weird thing is that you cannot find this fly in the early spring. It's really crazy if you consider how many flies we trap in the fall. They're either not here, like they didn't survive the winter, or they are at really unbelievably low population levels, undetectable levels. So even though these flies like to lay their eggs in strawberry, if you, if you give them an opportunity in a laboratory setting, June-bearing strawberry is rarely affected just because these flies aren't present at the time you're harvesting June-bearing strawberry. Populations start to grow um, exponentially in late June and early July for most areas of the Northeast, which means blueberry and summer raspberry crops are at risk of infestation depending on when SWD shows up. This will vary from location to location and, and year to year, so monitoring is really important for initiating application of crop protection materials. I checked in with my old pals at Cornell to get updated on the hot monitoring gossip as it stands today. I am Juliet Carroll, and I'm the Fruit IPM Coordinator for New York State. I work primarily with berries and tree fruit. Sure. I am Steve Hessler. I'm the research support specialist in the grape and small fruit, fruit program coordinated by Greg Loeb at Cornell Agritech. Yeah, so we started the SWD monitoring network in 2013. I was actually just going back through all the data to nail that down. It's, it's been quite a number of years. This will be the eighth season, 2020. Wow, and what have what have you learned so far? <laughs> uh, you know, it's I have learned a number of things. Um, I think I'll stay on more the science side as opposed to the sociology side of managing a large group of people. It's been really interesting because the insect arrives across this really long stretch of like 42 to 70 some days in New York State, as opposed to, you know, when you think about first trap catch of other insects, it's usually a fairly tight period of time, you know, one to two weeks maybe, and potentially the further south you go in a state, the earlier the insect might emerge or arrive in the trap. SWD does not play out like that. It doesn't think, about the fact that Long Island is the furthest south area and that Clinton County is the furthest north area in the network. No, it just decides it's gonna arrive first in somewhere up near Lake Ontario, or it's gonna arrive last somewhere down in Steuben County in the southern tier. So it's, it's really been an eye-opener in terms of insect biology in that way. So, so it sounds like the take-home message is that monitoring really matters. It really does. I, I think it really does. And I think most of the growers that we interact with would agree that it really helps them to understand when their crops are at risk. And I think especially crops that ripen earlier, like summer raspberries or the early blueberry varieties, sometimes they can get away without spraying at all. But if the insect arrives early, 
all bets are off. And it's the same now with the tart cherry industry and sweet cherries, which have been increasingly at risk. That was the other thing I was going to say, Anna, that we've learned. We've learned that this insect seems to arrive a little bit earlier every year a little bit earlier in the traps. Last year, I caught this insect in mid-May, as opposed to our usually, we think of it as arriving in early June, maybe mid-June. Um, for the trapping network that you have, how good is the monitoring data that you're, you're collecting regionally compared to on-farm? Like how important is it for farmers to do their own trapping versus relying on trapping data from like their neighbor? We would speculate that it is way more important for the grower to monitor on their own farm than to rely on regional. And I think it goes back to what I was saying about this insect not having any concern for latitude, you know, geography. Um, I know that Greg Loeb, entomologist here at Cornell, has been trying to get grants to actually do experiments to answer that specific question. I've been doing a study in tart cherries, and I find it, every single one of these orchards is in Wayne County. They're all near Lake Ontario. Some are very close to the lake, and some are further inland. And the differences in first trap catch just among those orchards that might be eight miles from one another is, is pretty significant. One that was quite a bit further inland basically didn't have to spray at all. They, did, they didn't spray anything for SWD, whereas those that were closer to the lake definitely had to put sprays on to protect their crop from SWD because we were catching there whereas we didn't catch in that one orchard. So long answer to your question, short answer is yes. I think it's really important for growers to monitor on their own farms as opposed to relying on a regional trap catch. But I think the regional trap catch gives them a perspective. It gives them a heads up, hey, it's here, numbers are increasing, it's time to get out and potentially check the harvest and do a sample, a salt flotation, and look in your fruit on your own farm to see if there's evidence of infestation that has started. Speaking of monitoring on your own, maybe I'll shift over to you, Steve, and um, you, can, you can throw in you know, your advice on the, the best methods of monitoring, and that could be like the best methods because they are the easiest or like the less stinky or unpleasant or the best methods in terms of like the best information. So how, how would you answer that question? Sure. We've, I think since the original detection of spotter wing in 2011, we've gone through a lot of different types of monitoring tools ranging from apple cider vinegar at the early years to a whole wheat bread dough lure, but certainly the easiest and what's now probably the standard is a commercially available synthetic lure. There's a couple different manufacturers um, work through Peter Landolt and Dong Cha's program, but it's been commercialized and that is pretty straightforward. You have a sachet type of lure that you insert into a 
peanut butter jar trap, soapy water as a drowning solution. Growers may want to monitor that a little more frequently, but we find a weekly visit to kind of keep tabs on what's going on gives us a good sense of population. And you all have been doing some work looking at um, how to use that monitoring data. So once you get really good at identifying your flies, how are you using those numbers to make crop management decisions? Well, we did do some research. I think it was in 14 and 15 that related to early detection and sort of using that as a tool. We found really in, in raspberries, which was summer raspberry and into fall raspberry, really the monitoring didn't really provide advanced warning. At the same time we were monitoring with adult traps, we were also doing salt flotations and measuring infestation and generally found the infestation was either the same or a little ahead of our adult monitoring. Blueberries is a different story. I think in some ways we, we did the same type of research with blueberries and found we were getting advanced warning with monitoring because in some cases it may have been almost too early. Other than it was providing some advanced warning in blueberries, we didn't really develop a more advanced sort of recommendation. I think there's been some work in low bush blueberries that's developed some sort of a threshold, but we really haven't gone that far with the uh, with our high bush production. But uh, Julie was kind of correct in saying like the early and mid-season blueberries, if they're monitoring and they're not capturing any traps, they can probably forego any insecticide applications. Some years that will get them through their season, perhaps. Other years, if they're catching them in those weeks prior to ripe fruit, they better be ready to treat. I think most research has shown that the uh, sentry lure and trap is essentially the best system, although now I think the trace lure is potentially just as good. What is being used with those red sticky cards, interestingly enough, is the sentry lure. So it's kind of a hybrid uh, trap system that Dean Polk is suggesting for growers in Michigan. I think Rufus Isaacs, the entomologist yeah. at Michigan State University, is using also suggesting that in blueberries in Michigan. And uh, Larry Goot's program, the tree fruit entomologist, he's also suggesting that for their tart cherry industry, I believe. Don't quote me on that. So it's the trace a red bird <clears throat> with a sentry that sachet that Steve mentioned earlier. It's like a it's like a plastic bag full of gel and you <laughs> hang that off of off of this trap. Yeah, I like that though because my experience like last summer I just kind of spent the summer going, okay, like if I was making crop management decisions, you know, like that shift from being the researcher to actually having to give people advice on how to make crop management decisions. Um, I was using the Trace A trap. And it was super easy to use because you weren't getting nearly as much bycatch. But as compared the, to Sentry. Compared to Sentry, yes. Yeah. So they're, <laughs> they're both really convenient because it's, you know, that lure over water, which makes it a lot cleaner. But like Sentry, you have to process it. You have to take it back, look at it under the scope. Mm -hmm. In the field, you can look into a Trace A lure and <clears throat> see there's not much else. Um, but... 
I was noticing that like through the summer, I was still getting like one or two in a trap for the trace where you'd see sentry like go up and up and up. So if I was trapping like maybe 20 males on average in sentry, I was getting like one maybe in oh. trace. And it was a similar type of trap, Anna. It was also yeah. the jar with the lure and the drowning solution. The yeah. System. Okay. So some of the num some of the numbers I was seeing from our monitoring network that was conducted before I arrived at my position was like the numbers were super super low really late in the season and I was like oh that's awesome and I thought maybe it was just because we were really far north but I realized it's because they use the trace lures which there's a trade off though because it's a lot easier to process you can process that right in the field but if you use the sentry lure on the red sticky card and people are able to identify that male that seems pretty good. But when it comes to actually using those numbers, I mean, I'm telling people that one male per trap per week, you know, if you're using three traps at a site, but we're saying like that would be low risk once you're getting up to like five or 10 males per trap per week is very high risk. And that, yeah, and would I you think agree with that? I would, I would potentially tenor that based on the crop. So what they're finding and we're finding in tart cherries is if, if, the, if that crop is ripening in one SWD, I don't care what gender it is, <laughs> gender neutral, I don't care, okay? It's time to treat if that crop is ripening. So that's the threshold they use in Michigan, tart mm -hmm. cherries. And they're number one in tart cherry production across the nation. In raspberry, I would say the same. It's you're looking at one SWD caught and you have a ripe crop out there or ripening, you've got to initiate your program. In blueberries, as Steve alluded to earlier, I think they're a little bit more forgiving crop. I think in lowbush blueberries, they were looking at a threshold of maybe 10 being when you would have to initiate a spray program if you've got ripening and ripe blue, low bush blueberries in the field. If, if we ponder, okay, how susceptible is this crop? I think raspberries are definitely first. Potentially tart cherries and sweet cherries might be second, but often they'll ripen before this thing arrives. And so in our minds, they aren't that susceptible because they're temporally removed potentially from the arrival of this insect. And then blueberries are less susceptible. Then you get into your summer crops like elderberry, late varieties of blueberry, fall raspberries, blackberries that might be ripening late in the summer. I mean, at that point, why monitor at all? If you've got a diversified farm and you know SWD is there, you know that you're going to need to have an insecticide program in place for SWD on those later ripening crops. So I hope I have you convinced that monitoring SWD through July is important to you to determine when to initiate spray programs and especially for blueberry and summer raspberry. Um, what is the best way to monitor? 
Well, that's a really tough question to answer, even though I, you know, I spent several years in last summer trying to figure it out. And I'm not just pulling that extension thing where we don't want to tell you what products to buy because we don't endorse products. This, this will really be up to you and the approach that's right for you and your operation. I mean, a little flow chart um, that I put into the show notes, if you're into it, perhaps that will be helpful. But in a nutshell, your action threshold will depend a whole lot on your acceptable level of infestation. If your goal is zero infestation, undetectable number of larvae in your fruit, you should monitor ripening crops with a few trace traps, at least three traps per plot. Sentry traps are, are more sensitive, but they're also less selective than trace traps. So I use sentry for research purposes, but they are not for the faint of heart. Um, they lure a whole bunch of other stuff, other species of flies, and finding SWD in those trap contents is it's kind of varsity level stuff. So for you, use several trace traps and check those traps as often as you can, I'd say at least once a week during that period of time in July. Um, If you are finding an average of one male per trap per week, go ahead and initiate a seven-day spray rotation in that crop. Once you start catching five or 10 males per trap per week, you'll probably need to shorten that rotation to maybe every five days. And then I I can barely believe I'm saying this, but there's definitely a justification for an acceptable level of infestation, or what I'm referring to as barely detectable. Low levels of young microscopic SWD larvae can go completely undetected in in many cases. So as long as you harvest frequently and refrigerate those fruit as soon as possible, several days of normal refrigerator temperatures will knock out these microscopic forms, either stop them in their tracks or kill them outright. If your operation can handle a barely detectable infestation. I would rely on the salt float method to initiate your spray rotation when you find maybe 0.5 larvae per 100 fruit sample. Um, You can find directions on how to do this in the show notes. Out of the dozen or so blueberry operations we monitored last year, most of them got through the season with just one spray. Some of them didn't spray at all, and they achieved that goal of barely detectable. Something to think about. Well, I hope that helps. I know it's not a great situation. And the researchers of the world are still looking into better solutions for these problems. So stay tuned. Keep vigilant. Monitor those blueberries. Um, That's it for this week. Thanks to Abby for all her hard work last summer. And thanks to the state IPM program for giving her that job. Thanks to Steve and Julie over at Cornell Agritech and New York IPM. And of course, Thanks to Jason Lightbound, who wrote and performed our theme music. Overinformed on IPM is a production of University of New Hampshire Cooperative Extension, an equal opportunity educator and employer. All music is used by permission or by Creative Commons licensing. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the university, its trustees, or its volunteers. Inclusion or exclusion of commercial enterprises in this podcast does not equate endorsement. The University of New Hampshire, New Hampshire counties, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperate to provide extension programming in the Granite State. Learn more at extension.unh.eu.
sentence from Dean. I hope he doesn't get mad that I'm quoting him and reading his, his email to me. But he says, thresholds are a holy grail and there are none. <laughs> <laughs> so that gets back at what we were saying earlier. <laughs>